0: I was determined to use a text for this evening that you guys never heard before on a Christmas day. (laughs) Or Christmas service, nevertheless. (laughs) How's this for a familiar Christmas text? Why are you all looking at me funny? (laughs) Well, I did the absurd and chose this text for one reason, because as I came across this in my own personal readings, and as I'm studying it, I'm seeing there's a lot of parallels between these two stories that we read from Scripture tonight. Not all of them are obvious, but as soon as you see them we, and we connect the dots, there's some beautiful parallels here. because Jesus is welcomed into Jerusalem with an earthly choir in what we just read, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Welcomed in shouts of praise and glory. And while at his birth in Luke chapter 2, when he was announced to the shepherds, he was announced by a group of the heavenly choir, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace! Peace! among those whom he is pleased <laughs> perhaps the reason jesus said that the people must cry out hosanna and would not stop them was cuz he knew if he stopped them the heavenly choir might return i i can only speculate whatever the case in both cases jesus is welcomed both to the earth by the angels and by the people in the streets with praise which is exactly the right response to the coming of Christ. Into the world, into your heart, whatever it is, it, in praise, that is the right response. If Jesus is who he claims to be, how can we do anything but praise him and glorify him and sing his praises? It's the right response that he would leave his throne in heaven and step down into this darkness of earth and live amongst us as Emmanuel, God with us. And not just that he would leave his throne, but he didn't have a comfortable life either. He was born into a poor family. He was born into a set of difficult circumstances and didn't exactly live a comfortable life into adulthood where he was crucified for our sins. (laughs) You know, in a few minutes, we'll be responding to the word in more praise and more worship and more singing because that's the fitting response the it is the what is singing but the outpouring of praise coming from a grateful heart for all that Christ has done for us you know there's a reason why us Christians we are a singing people why we have so many hymns at our services why we have christian radio stations and all of these other things playing christmas music and um and uh, just praise music all year round because Jesus is deserving of all of our praises. But that's not the only response Jesus got to his ministry, praise and worship. The other response is rejection and hate, which, I'll leave you with them, is the other understandable response to Jesus' coming. We want to believe that we're good people and that, you know, I'm a good person. I do the right things in life. And you know what? I believe that when I die, everything's going to turn out okay for me. But, and as much as we want to believe that we're good people like that, when we read the Bible, it says, no, the better title for you isn't a good person, but a sinner that Things are not necessarily going to be great for us when we pass away. If we don't believe in the Savior. Because we need to be redeemed. We need to have our sins forgiven so that this thing that has separated us from God is no longer keeping us separated from Him when we come to the other side of eternity. And that's not a popular message. That's poking at people. It it, it pokes at people, that message, That we're not as good as we want to be. That we're not the good people we perhaps desire to be. (laughs) And because of that, often the gospel is received with hatred, persecution even. (laughs) To this day, to this very night, a service just like this one is illegal in something like 52 countries around the earth where the Powers that be, do not like this message and will do anything to stop it and silence it, even with jailings and persecutions. Anything to stop it. So praise is the correct response. Rejection is an understandable response. But the one response that doesn't actually make logical sense to the gospel is passive indifference. That's the one thing that doesn't make sense. Believing that, Jesus descended from heaven, lived a perfect life among us, died on the cross for your sins, taking on the punishment that we deserved to serve ourselves. He took upon his own body. And after all of that, our response to his great grace towards us is, oh, that's cool, I guess. Huh, that's neat. You see the emotional mismatch between the two. (laughs) If so, think about it. If someone were to jump in front of the train and stop you, and stop you from going across the tracks, and they passed away doing so, you would think of that person every day for the rest of your life. You would hang a picture of that person in your living room and you'd remember them. You'd hang their obituary in your office to remember that day that this person gave their life to save you. And you'd have a grateful heart for the rest of your life for that moment. And yet, if that is our response to being saved from a train, how much more for the one who saved our souls for all eternity? How could we be indifferent towards that? if we really believe that Jesus is as real as the building we're sitting in, and that sin and death and the reality of heaven and hell is as real as the train station next door, how can we be indifferent to these truths? Perhaps our hearts need to repent of one of of one of this indifference and become one of thanksgiving and praise. I know that, that's my own personal journey as a Christian. I can speak to it because I've been there. You know, I don't have some crazy testimony of growing up on the streets. I had a pretty boring testimony. <laughs> I grew up in the church and eventually came to know Christ as my Savior. That's not going to wow anybody. I'm not going to get invited to any conference anytime soon to go tell that story. But... but Here's the truth, you know, for, most, for a good portion of my upbringing, I describe my relationship with Christ like a Doobie Brothers song. Jesus is just all right with me. <laughs> you know that tune. Oh, he's all right. He's my guy. I like this guy. We're cool. We're cool. That's, that's how I would have ex- explained my relationship with God for a good portion of my life. Until one day it dawned on me. If Jesus is really real, if all of this is true, and he really did this for me, well, that has consequences for my life. And that's all that it took to get me to rethink a whole lot of things in my own life, to reexamine my life, my spirituality, how I view God, and how I viewed my content, passive. Jesus is just all right mentality. And you know, maybe that's some of you guys tonight. Maybe you've been coming to church a couple of times a year, maybe all the time, and you've had this idea of, you know, yeah, Jesus is great, but nothing life-changing. I'd encourage you guys to rethink that, to think it through again logically, because that's the only attitude that doesn't make sense towards God. Because Jesus was either a liar about who he was and being the son of God, in which case he doesn't deserve our attention and respect. He was a lunatic who was claiming to be God, but yet wasn't, in which case he doesn't deserve our attention at all. He deserves help. Or he actually is who he said he is. And Jesus is Lord. And if he is, Oh, then he deserves all of the glory, honor, and praise due his name. And not just passive appeasements once or twice a year. But getting back to these parallels that we see in John 12, we see Jesus also entering into Jerusalem in humility. No, he's not riding in on a conquering war horse as a Roman general in his time would. The parallel would have been obvious to the people living at the time, but he comes in on a donkey's colt. Hardly impressive. Hardly making a name for yourself. You know, and this is to emphasize Jesus' whole first coming. That Jesus did not come to rule and to reign with power and restore Israel to this great empire. But no, he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, the Bible tells us. And in that spirit of humility, Jesus was not welcomed into the world at his, carna- at his incarnation into a great palace, but a manger surrounded by animals and all the filth that comes with having animals around you. A place that you would not let your kids be born in. A place you guys wouldn't let your grandkids be born in. You'd be appalled at the idea. But in all fairness, what what could we have given Jesus that he would have deserved? I mean, if Jesus is the Son of God, he deserves greater than our greatest cathedrals. He's of more value than all the gold of all the great halls in all the earth. And I can't help but to think of Solomon, who upon dedicating the temple in 1 Kings, which some estimate would be worth hundreds of billions of dollars if it was made by, compared to what today's valuations would be. Again, that's 12 figures, guys. No, no real estate is worth that much. He said of that temple that he dedicated to the worship of the Lord, that the heaven of heavens could not contain his glory. How much less this temple, this great amazing work of architecture, and he says, "The heaven of heavens can't control can't contain you God. How much less this box, despite all the beautiful things inside it?" How much even less was the manger? Wow, when you think about that. Are we starting to get the picture? Are we starting to understand how much Jesus condescended when he left his throne to come and be with us? And I mean that in the very best sense of the word, by the way. Because yet, even in his humility, his humility makes him even more worthy. Let me ask you a question. Let's imagine for ourselves two kings with two equal kingdoms, with two equal armies of two equal wealth. Which one is going to be the greater king? That's a tough question until I introduce one more data point. that at the end of the night, the first king retires into his royal chambers when the other king after go, after he's done with his kingly duties puts on peasant clothes and lives amongst the people for the rest of the evening which, you tell me which one's the greater king i think the answer becomes obvious the his humility is a virtue that we so often forget about and is so infrequently seen in this world, especially to that degree. Jesus is no ordinary king. But furthermore, who would be worthy to welcome Jesus into the world? What king or prince has any right to stand before the king of kings, much less the shepherd outcasts? that we read about in Luke chapter 2, who welcomed the king. <laughs> it's funny, we don't think of shepherds as outcasts. They're quite celebrated in Christian culture, but it wasn't that way in the first century. It wasn't that way for most of history. No, they were, they were second-class second citizens at best in the first century. And that was the title of those who welcomed Jesus into the world? Not princes or ambassadors or dignitaries, but filthy, stinky shepherds? Wow. But frankly, are any of us of greater honor than they? The prophet Isaiah told us that all of our righteousness, all of our supposed righteousness, it's as filthy rags to a holy and perfect God, if we're honest. We are the sinners that he had to come to earth to redeem after all. Frankly, had we not sinned, had even any single one of us been the only sinner to ever live, Jesus still would have had to leave his throne to redeem us. That's the extent of our own personal sin. We don't think about it that way. We think of all the sin in the world. We think of all the things going on in the news and horrendous things that happen. We don't think about the sin in our own hearts about when we think of when Jesus came to earth. We should, because in God's eyes, that's what put Jesus on the cross just as much as that stuff on the news. Our need to be saved runs deeper than we realize. One final comparison, and then I'll make my conclusion. In the narrative of Jesus' birth, he's initially welcomed with joy. From the shepherds, the angels, his earthly parents, even the wise men who would later come, it is a joyful reception of Jesus. But afterwards, the powers that be attempted to murder the boy. Many of you know the story as the jealousy of king herod was was perked by this coming of this newborn king, but he's the king, so he had he ordered the death of every two year old boy in that region just to make sure that he got this Jesus to make sure there's going to be no other king but him. you know it's it's sad. Some people laugh and say such a slaughter never happened. We don't have any record of that in history, they say. But they forget that Bethlehem at that time, 2,000 years ago, only had about 300 people living in it. So you do the statistics, Those might there was probably only six or seven boys meeting that criteria in Bethlehem at the time. It's still a tragedy. It's still too many lives lost. But we begin to understand why that might not have made the headlines at the time in, into history, especially because Herod probably killed more people in his own family than he did in Bethlehem. So that's why we understand things. That, that's perhaps why we don't read more of that, especially when the entire population of it, of Bethlehem could probably fit into this room. But yet Jesus manages to escape this. His family flees to Egypt and he survives. But yet, shortly after his triumphal entry, what we just read in John chapter 12, the world powers once again converge against Jesus. The shouts of praise that we read about just just then stopped as Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified, this time supposedly achieving their goal of killing Jesus. And I say that very, very carefully. Because when we read in John 10 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me. I give it up willingly. I have the power to give it up and I have the power to receive it back again. The only reason why they were successful, the only reason why Jesus did pass away on the cross, was because Jesus laid his own life down willingly. He did it willingly. He could have stopped it. Matthew 26, Jesus said he could have called down 12 legions of angels to protect him if he wanted to. That's enough heavenly force to conquer the world. That's thousands upon thousands of angels. Powerful creatures. But he didn't. Why? Why would he allow that to happen if he could have stopped it? Because it was his plan all along. The reason for the manger is the blood-stained cross. The reason he came was to give his life as a ransom for us. That he loved you so much that even though we are separated by God because of our sins, disqualified from entering heaven because of our own personal impurity, he left the glories of heaven to be born in a manger and die on the cross so that the sins that had bound us to hell would be counted against him and not us. So now, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you believe that Jesus did that on the cross for you, if you believe he went in your place to the cross and died there in your place <laughs> and repent of our sins and turn to Jesus with our whole heart, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sins because your sins have been paid for. Your sins were paid for on the cross. There is no double jeopardy with God. But rather, when he looks at you, he sees the gift of righteousness. He, does, he sees the blood of his Son covering your sins and his righteousness in turn. It's the only way to be justified before a holy and perfect God. So whether we read of Jesus' infancy or towards the end of his ministry, we will see clearly Jesus is a different kind of king. He didn't come to conquer nations or dwell in beautiful palaces. He didn't come to set up some great earthly empire. He came for a heavenly one. He didn't come to change the state of the world or world affairs. He came to change you. He came to change me. That's why He came. So this Christmas, the question emerges, how are we going to welcome Jesus? Are we going to welcome him into our hearts? Are we going to welcome him with shouts of Hosanna, glory to God in the highest? Or, like the crowds later in this story, crucify him, crucify him. Will we join with the choirs of angels praising God, giving Jesus all the glory due his name for redeeming our souls? Or will we be like that same crowd again? We have no king but Caesar. The manger and the cross demand an answer from us. What's going to be your response tonight? What's going to be your response this season? Amen.